As a lawyer, ever wish you could be in two places at once? You could take a call when you're in court, capture a lead during a meeting. That's where Posh comes in. We're live virtual receptionists who answer and transfer your calls. With Posh, you can save as much as 40% off your current service provider's rates. Start your free trial today at Posh.com. Welcome to Pro Se, Law 360's weekly podcast. I'm your host, Amber McKinney, and I'm here with my co-hosts, Bill Donahue. Hello, hello. And Alex Lawson. Hi, everyone. I uh, I was mistakenly under the impression that we were moving into the slower part of the news calendar. Um, there's... It turns out we're not. <laughs> no. Uh, <laughs> At least not yet. <laughs> no, there's quite a bit to get to, um, and we have some interesting stories to talk about at length, but there's a number of things that have happened uh, literally today, Thursday, as we're talking, and in, in just, a, just a few hours prior, um, and I think it would be good, we could, we could probably just rattle off a couple here. Um, just yeah, this sm- is our yeah. lightning round, I think. Yeah, yeah, we call it a lightning round here up top. The, um, the uh, Just this morning, there were a number of indictments uh, unsealed. Um, Against the Trump organization, a grand jury indicted uh, the Trump company and its CFO for various fraud and tax crimes. Uh, the CFO in question surrendered. Um, uh, there's there, there there there's a bunch of other uh, of other stuff though. That one we will probably have a chance to revisit here uh, in the future, and we'll keep you updated on that. But there's uh, there's a lot of other stuff too. On the flip side of one we'll continue to follow, we have one that's sort of closing up that yeah. we just wanted to update people on because we have talked about it a lot on Pro Se. And that's a Jones Day um, pay bias suit that's gone on for about two and a half years. And finally, the last plaintiff dropped her claims against the firm. So since we've been covering a long time, wanted to let people know that that one is finally concluded. Uh, Brittany was was not freed today. Um, (laughs) Right. uh, A judge denied a motion to remove her her father as the conservator of, uh, you know, that that, there's, there's been a lot of. Um, a lot of talk of that recently, and um, but there's there's more coming down the pike. Uh, the 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 fight ahead is going to be about whether to terminate the conservatorship entirely, and there's calls to investigate some of the the bombshell allegations that she made last week that that made their way out into the media. So there will be a lot of free Britney uh, stuff coming up. I never thought I'd read so much about conservatorships. I thought my peak of that was probably my trust in a states class in law school, but <laughs> I was wrong. Yeah. Uh, today is also, uh, we are recording on the last day of the SCOTUS term. There were two uh, sort of holdout opinions. They uh, bled into July. Uh, classic procrastinators that they are. Uh, we're going to talk about one of those later on, uh, an important voting rights case. Um, but even beyond the link, the uh, actual opinions they had to dispense of, there's also the lingering question of Justice Stephen Breyer um, and whether he will step down from his post on the bench. Uh, as we record today at 3.22 Eastern on Thursday, that has not happened yet. Um, cannot be ruled out, though. Could come later today or possibly Friday or in the coming weeks. And if that, if we are, to the extent we are able to... Uh, we will certainly update you as that becomes uh, uh, necessary. There's I think it's going to happen the minute the minute that Jimmy Hoover Probably. cracks his first beer for the weekend <laughs> for the holiday <laughs> weekend. <laughs> I think it's going to happen at that exact moment, 
and then he will be forced to return to a computer. He's promptly. got a, he's got pre-rights. I know Jimmy. I mean, I don't mean to pull back the curtain too much. All the Supreme Court reporters have the have the pre-rights ready, so hopefully it won't be too much of a uh, a heavy burden on Jimmy. Justice, there, but we will. Justice Stephen Breyer retired today. He was eaten <laughs> eaten by wolves. <laughs> oh, that's one of my favorite favorite sketches of all time holy smokes what what a reference by you uh bill to to start us off here very good well i feel like we definitely packed a lot of a lot into just our up top patter talking to each other um because we had so much to cover but let's get in more substantively to the three big ones we're going to talk about today yes um i think it would be wise to start with um the surprising uh exoneration of Bill Cosby by the Pennsylvania Supreme Court this week. Um, the state's high court threw out the comedian's sexual assault conviction on Wednesday. They ruled basically that Cosby was unfairly tried after receiving what he believed was a promise of immunity from the state's prosecutors. Um, it's a little bit of a weedy case that we will walk through here in a second, but I think the big picture implications are pretty obvious. We'll get into those as well. This is um, a huge reversal of what had been one of the most high-profile convictions of the Me Too era. Um, and then even sort of parallel and separate uh, from that, um, it put a spotlight on the approach that prosecutors take in cases like this and even just the conduct of prosecutors generally um, and the importance of due process and the Fifth Amendment Lots of things like that. So there are, um, as you can imagine, many angles to discuss here. And I think we should get into some of them. Yeah, this one was one I followed, you know, pretty closely. I think most of the nation followed it in some capacity when um, the case was active. But then mm -hmm. when he was convicted, it just it seemed like the whole thing was pretty finished and, and it dropped off everyone's radar. I was quite surprised to see this big reversal. Let's talk through just the saga, though, of how we got here. I think we all probably need a, a refresh there. Yeah, I think it's important to lay out the, the the somewhat involved fact pattern and then talk about what the court actually said. So, as I think most people know, Bill Cosby, and I just want to reiterate very firmly, Bill Cosby has been publicly accused um, by name um, uh, of sexual assault by more than 50 women um, who have put their names to these allegations in various publications um, and other things. Um, but this case centers on the accusation of just one woman, and that is uh, Andrea Constand. She, is, um, she was a former Temple University women's basketball coach who, in 2005, she accused Bill Cosby, who she had, she had befriended, of drugging and sexually molesting her uh, a year prior. So the district attorney at that time, in 2005, was a man named Bruce Castor, and he looked at the charges, and he announced that he was not going to prosecute Cosby. He didn't think the evidence was sufficient um, to, to, to bring charges, and he instead sort of sets them on a path for a civil case. And I will ask you to just sort of pin that in your mind, um, the, the, the declination to prosecute and then going to a civil case. Just remember that now, because that's going to become very important very soon. The civil case goes forward between Cosby and Constand, and in that civil case, Cosby testifies under oath in a deposition to, in the past, drugging women with quaaludes for sex, and that's obviously a huge bombshell revelation. He doesn't say it about Constand specifically, but he admits to doing that in his past. 
That civil case eventually settled for just over $3 million. So that appeared to be the end of it. You fast forward to 2015, when that civil suit testimony that I just, that I just talked about is unsealed, and there's an entirely new DA, not Bruce Castor, and she decides to reopen the criminal case, the, the Constand criminal case, using that civil suit testimony as evidence, as um, sort of evidence of a predatory nature in Cosby's background. This helps to build the case against him in the newly opened Constand criminal case. Um, a lot of stuff happens from there, but uh, eventually Cosby is convicted by a jury and sentenced to prison. And that kind of brings us up to speed, which sort of ripened the appeal that we're talking about today. It's very interesting because the entire story is sort of the Me Too movement in uh, in microcosm because yeah. it deals with these older allegations that people knew about to a certain extent, and they were you know they, they were lingered as, a little bit. They, they the, were treated as a civil yeah. case. It mm-hmm. was you know, um, and then years later they're they're reexamined. Um, but so I I think I sort of know where this is going. But walk us through you know why this case now, why this conviction um, uh, that was later secured, why that was thrown out. Yeah. So this is very thorny. Um, but uh, just to 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 briefly put it, it all stretches back to Bruce Castor's original decision not to prosecute Cosby in two thousand and five. Um, in the appeal here, uh, Castor testified that when he decided not to bring charges. He did so as kind of like an assurance to Cosby that he would not be prosecuted sort of going forward at all and to encourage him to testify in the civil trial. So in the eyes of the high court, as they wrote about it in their opinion this week, this announcement that Castor makes to not bring charges essentially functions as a promise of immunity to Cosby. And it was with that promise in mind that Cosby gave incriminating testimony, having waived his Fifth Amendment rights. He did this in the civil case and in the eyes of the court um, that it was improper then for a new DA to use testimony that was given under the presumption of immunity in a new criminal proceeding. Does this make sense to you guys a little yeah. bit? It's a little, yeah, it's a little convoluted. Sure. But the idea is Cosby and his lawyers thought he was immune from the prior DA, and then a new DA uses this testimony he gave to bring a new criminal case. Um, there's a lengthy quote from the... It's actually the concurring opinion, not the majority opinion, but it sums it up um, uh, in the most neat way um, that the high court uh, handed down today in Pennsylvania. Quote, By publicly announcing that appellant William Cosby would not be charged with any crimes related to Andrea Constand, a decision apparently made in part to force Cosby to testify in Constand's future anticipated civil suit, former Montgomery County District Attorney Bruce Castor intended to, and in fact did, force Cosby to give up his Fifth Amendment right against self-incrimination. Then, years later... Caster's successor used the damaging evidence Cosby turned over in the civil case to convict him of the same criminal offenses he had previously been induced to believe were off the table. So mm. I think most people understand that you that the Fifth Amendment means that you, you cannot be compelled to testify against yourself in a criminal case. I think that's pretty well understood. But you may be compelled to do so in a civil, in a civil case if you've been given immunity from prosecution. Now, the, the, the specifics of how Cosby got 
you know, quote, immunity here are a little bit messy. Um, but that is basically what sort of drives the court's decision here. Um, there uh, are a couple of different angles, which we will parse out in a second here. The majority said that uh, this, this immunity promise means that Cosby can never be tried again on the Constand case. That is the, that is the holding of the court. So basically, he is walking free and will likely never face charges on this question again. There was uh, a dissent that suggested he could be tried again only without this incriminating civil case evidence. Um, but again, that is, just, that is just a dissent. That is not the holding. And that is sort of uh, uh, where we stand here. I think on the face of this one, you know, most people feel like this has the ring of injustice to it on some level because Cosby did some really terrible things. I think a lot of people wanted to see him convicted for at least some of those crimes. Yeah. But I know there's just, you know, the way you've explained it, Alex, it's clear there's a lot more to this than just Cosby himself. What's the big picture takeaways about, you know, what this means for other similarly situated um, accused men, but also, you know, it seems like there may be some good reasons to follow proper procedure here. Yeah. Well, the the implications are manifold. Um, and I would I would certainly encourage everyone to read the opinion if you can. It's it's fairly dense. I I want to give a shout out to Matt Fair, who covered it for us. I thought he did a great job of parsing it out. It's like an 80 page legal opinion. Um, that deals with a lengthy fact pattern, and also that there are like there are seven justices on the court, and they split into a bunch of different pluralities on a couple of different questions. Here, he does a good job breaking it down, um, especially on this question of when immunity is granted. There is no piece of paper right. in this case that says we decline to prosecute Bill Cosby forever and ever, but there is sort of the implication of it in the DA's conversations with his lawyers. Um, but it has a lot of ripple effects, as you say, Amber. So in the, you know, in the post Me Too era, this is obviously a huge blow to people who who represent um, and advocate for victims of sexual assault. Put plainly, it's a guy with dozens of allegations against him who is now walking free on a question that really doesn't have anything to do with his guilt or innocence in the case. This is about the manner in which he was prosecuted and some entanglement over promises that were made to his legal team and testimony he gave later. You can disappear down the legalese rabbit hole on this for quite some time. Um, the, the new Montgomery County DA who was um, arguing before the high court is a man named Kevin Steele. And he basically issued a statement right after this, this decision was issued that kind of seemed to head it off. He was, he was stressing the somewhat procedural nature of the exoneration and... He stressed that it's it it shouldn't give you know women or anyone who is uh, a, a victim of sexual assault pause about coming forward. Here is what the here's what the DA said. Quote: He was found guilty by a jury and now goes free on a procedural issue that is irrelevant to the facts of the crime. My hope is that this decision will not dampen the reporting of sexual assaults by victims. Prosecutors in my office will continue to follow the evidence wherever and to whomever it leads. We still believe that no one is above the law, including those who are rich, famous, and powerful. So that's one bucket of it. It is obviously a blow to the sort of legal accountability end of the, of the Me Too movement, right? But at the same time, there was another raft of conversation that bubbled up that was about you know, the, the civil liberties issue. Um, 
which is which deals with it almost feels like you know I, I know how you like to say Amber it almost feels like a law school type of question of like let's give you the most unsavory unpalatable facts you could right. ever want to you know just you know mull over with someone who was accused of sexual assault by fifty women, um, but you know, consider whether or not that person has been given due process rights. As I said, we don't have a piece of paper from the DA's office that said, we'll never prosecute this person. Um, But that is the way the state held it, or that that is the way that the court viewed it. And the court is basically holding the state to its implicit promise. Um, And if you broaden this reasoning out to to things that are not to do with sexual assault, you know, they're basically saying prosecutors can't just play fast and loose with when and whether they decide to shield people from prosecution. And it's uncomfortable to talk about it in this specific context, but I think it's important to sort of hammer home um, that it's just another facet of um, what is a very thorny case here. Okay, we're going to switch gears to uh, financial you know, misdeeds here with our second story and talk a, a little bit about um, Robinhood, which is a name that should sound familiar to listeners because it's the stock trading app that was at the center of this uh, winter and spring's GameStop mania, debacle, whatever you want to call it. Um, <laughs> Robinhood yes. agreed this week to pay a record $70 million fine to financial industry regulators to resolve accusations that the company misled consumers, uh, didn't take care of its technology well enough, a whole bunch of bad stuff uh, that they were accused of doing here. And it's, um, you know, it's interesting because it's a, it's a, I think, a classic case of you know, they're this disruptor, this uh, you yeah. know, tech company coming into a new space, which is all fine and good until you start actually breaking rules. And then, it's yes. you know, you sort of run the uh, you, you run out of room to disrupt. <laughs> yes. So, Bill, I feel like we're at a concert and I'm about to ask you to play one of your greatest hits. But um, can you play that hit and tell us the background here? I think we might have some <clears throat> new listeners that didn't follow along and, and need the sort of upshot of what Robin Hood was up to. Yeah, at this point, I've got a tight 10 on uh, Robinhood and and GameStop mess. Um, So we talked about Robinhood in, I I believe it was January, when everything was happening with GameStop, which was to to very, very briefly dip back in. A bunch of internet users teamed up using message boards, Reddit, whatever, and used apps like Robinhood, which are retail investment apps, um, to pump money into dying companies like GameStop and AMC. Um, and they, they, they doing this caused their prices to sort of, you know, improbably, incomprehensibly skyrocket yeah. in a way that the underlying fundamentals of the companies didn't, you know, it doesn't make sense that they would go up. Um, this was something that was called meme trading. It's still a thing. These swings of, for these companies are still happening. But back when it was first happening uh, earlier this year, as these swings got crazier and crazier and crazier, Robinhood and other retail trading uh, brokerages put a halt to trading on um, on these companies. Um, in Robinhood's case, that was because their own clearinghouse was actually demanding more collateral because they were selling so they were you know executing so many trades on yeah. these companies and um unsurprisingly when robinhood put put a halt to to this trading it caused those share prices to plummet um all these users many of whom were uh, not particularly well versed with with the the you know the financial world 
um, got pretty upset with this. Uh, they were left holding the bag, and there are now dozens of lawsuits pending um, primarily against Robin Hood uh, in courts around the country. Whenever stuff sort of quickly disrupts, you know, the financial market orthodoxy, you, it usually proceeds on two tracks, which I know, like you mentioned, people always get sued, which is going on. And then there's also the sort of quickly evolving government oversight uh, sort of regulatory aspect of it, which I think is more what we're talking about here. So what exactly is has has gone on? Yeah, what what we saw this week wasn't directly connected to what we saw earlier this year um but but it does see robin hood in in more hot water um on wednesday the financial industry regulatory authority which is um it's known as finra they're a uh, a, a private industry self-regulator not a government agency um yeah they announced a record 70 million dollar fine against robin hood over what uh finra called quote Systemic supervisory failures that had harmed uh, millions of Robinhood's customers. We will get into the exact details of those allegations in a second, but here's what FINRA had to say when they announced this. Quote, This action sends a clear message. All FINRA members, regardless of their size or business model, must comply with the rules that govern the brokerage industry, rules which are designed to protect investors and the integrity of our markets. Compliance with these rules is not optional and cannot be sacrificed for the sake of innovation or a willingness to break things and fix them later. So that was sort of a, you know, a pointed shot at Robin Hood as, you know, this is again what I said at the outset, which is it's all yeah. it's it's fine if you want to try to find new ways to help people trade. Their whole thing is that we're going to democratize things, but you you still need to stick to the basic rules. Um for its part, Robinhood neither admitted nor denied the allegations. That was part of this deal, which you see with a lot of yes, these deals. Yeah. Um, the quote from them was, quote, We're glad to put this matter behind us and look forward to continuing to focus on our customers and democratizing finance for all. So you've brought up a couple times that there were some broken rules here. What exactly were those? It's a few buckets of things, uh, these allegations. So first um, was that Robinhood sent false and misleading info to its customers, um, and not really about little things. Uh, we're talking about um, information about the extent to which people could tra place trades on margin, um, uh, how much cash was in their accounts, how much risk they faced on options trades. Pretty big stuff if you're um, executing financial transactions. Mm -hmm. um, the... You know the the hardest part about this is that Finra directly cited uh, a case of a user who uh, uh, sadly killed himself as a result of all this stuff because he faced this huge loss. He thought he had turned off uh, margin trading and um, he saw this huge loss on his account. There is actually a wrongful death lawsuit that has been filed over that. So um, uh, they really made a point to cite a very specific uh, you know harm that had been caused by this. The second bucket here is, and this sort of links back to GameStop, is that Finra said Robinhood was was playing pretty fast and loose with um, offering right. options to people who perhaps should not have been qualified for them. Options um, are a pretty complex financial instrument, and Finra said that Robinhood used um, these these bots and algorithms to decide who can buy them in a way that allowed people to sort of game the system and gain access to this stuff when really it should have been available more to people who knew what they were, you know, what kind of 
um, you know, what kind of gas they were playing with near the matches. Um, yeah, right. Uh, they cited one young user who I believe was 20, uh, who was immediately rejected to, uh, you know, he was found ineligible to buy these things and then just changed his information and was approved immediately afterwards. So, <laughs> Uh, they they sort of made the point that um, this was not enough oversight. It was not enough human oversight to um, figure out who could buy these things. The third thing that Finra said was a, a series of outages in which Robinhood's technology broke down and and users um, were were um, had to deal with the the fallout. They pointed specifically to um, a, a, an outage in early March of 2020, which. I don't know if you guys remember, but that was a fairly fraught time uh, That's for true. the world sure. and more specifically for financial markets. It's ringing and, a bell. Yeah. Uh, so it was right in the middle of this uh, unprecedented market volatility with the pandemic about to strike. And right then they had an outage and people weren't ex- able, able to execute trades. Um, it apparently lost individual users tens of thousands of dollars as a result. So Robinhood, as part of this deal, is paying remuneration to some of those people. The final thing here was that FINRA said that Robinhood had failed to forward tens of thousands of user complaints to the regulator. So that's you know more of a procedural thing than some of these substantive ones I mentioned earlier, but also sort of that's the way that FINRA realizes when someone is breaking rules. So that's also a fairly important part of the um of the equation here it 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 all um you know it is behind robin hood now and um you know they will tell you that that they're going to fix these things and make everything more um you know uh, more predictable for their users and more stable um we will see if robin hood or other of these um you know these disruptive stock trading platforms um whether they stick to the rules and um and or, or whether we see more regulation, whether it's from FINRA or from federal regulators moving forward. As a lawyer, ever wish you could be in two places at once? You could take a call when you're in court, capture a lead during a meeting. That's where Posh comes in. We're live virtual receptionists who answer and transfer your calls. With Posh, you can save as much as 40% off your current service provider's rates. Start your free trial today at Posh.com. For our final story today, I want to turn us to the Supreme Court. Um, The last day of the Supreme Court term almost always brings some kind of big blockbuster ruling. We definitely had one today. The court upheld voting restrictions in Arizona that had been challenged as discriminating against minority groups. This is a really big deal because around the country right now, state legislatures have been considering and passing a whole raft of laws that make it harder to vote. And this really makes it pretty clear that the majority of the U.S. Supreme Court is unlikely to back any legal challenges to those laws. There are always a... a Myriad issues um, when the court tackles voting rights. I know that, I mean, for, you know, various state legislatures know that it was it was always difficult to prove sort of racist intent in drawing voting laws in a certain way. So it was the the recourse was then to challenge sort of the racial discrimination effects of them. And I know that this kind of gets to that a little bit. Um which we'll get to in a second. But um, what are the facts? I mean, the, with the, the the particulars of like the question before the court on voting rights are always so important to understand 
what they rule. So what actually was before them here? Yeah, before I actually talk about this case in particular, I do want to take us back just one beat to remind people of the the last giant voting rights yeah. ruling. So you may remember a couple years ago, it's actually been several years ago now, 2013, there was a case called Shelby County versus Holder. The Supreme Court in that one struck down the central provision of the Voting Rights Act. That central provision had required prior federal approval to make changes to voting procedures in parts of the country that have a long history of racial and other types of discrimination. So it's like a it was a pre-approval thing that the government had to sign off before you made a big change. That got stripped away. Another part of the law, and that's the one we're going to talk about today, is called Section 2. It remained intact after that ruling. This case is the first time the Supreme Court has interpreted whether that provision protects against voting restrictions that have a disproportionate impact on members of minority groups. Particularly at issue here, there are two Arizona state voting regulations. One criminalized certain kinds of third-party ballot collections. That's like when campaign workers or community activists would gather up uh, ballots and then take them to a polling place. The other rejected out-of-precinct ballots. So that's where somebody went to the incorrect precinct to try to vote. Here's what Section 2 actually says. I'm going to read a couple little excerpts of it so that we just sort of have a baseline here. So Section 2 bars any voting procedure that, quote, results in a denial or abridgment of the right of any citizen of the United States to vote on account of race. And the Voting Rights Act continues to say that that happens when, quote, based on the totality of circumstances, racial minorities have less opportunity than other members of the electorate to participate in the political process and to elect representatives of their choice. This is this is what I had saying. Like you you can see it when you read the thing there. They are saying if it if it results in an abridgment of voting rights on account of race, that is the way the law is drawn. The law has that in mind. Obviously, you can't get into the mind of people who write voting regulations they like i want to stop you know black and brown people from voting and things like that but it's like if it has that result that is enough of a trigger here um what had what had um lower courts said about these about these rules yeah so this case in particular was brought by the democratic national committee it led the suit against these arizona restrictions it's made its way all the way to an en banc ninth circuit and that court ruled um in a split decision that both of the provisions violated the Voting Rights Act by disproportionately disadvantaging minority voters. So it's basically what you were explaining there, Alex. They they agreed yeah. with the idea that, yeah, this results in suppressing minority vote and therefore it's a problem. The on-bank ruling, like I said, was divided. The majority pointed out that in 2016, Black, Latino, and Native American voters in Arizona were about twice as likely to cast ballots in the wrong precinct as were white voters. And that was for a few reasons, they specifically pointed to how there were frequent changes to polling locations and confusing placement of where they were. So it just really messed up a lot of people there. The majority also said that the ban on ballot collectors had an outsized effect on mon- minority voters because a variety of factors lead them to use collection more than white voters. Yeah. So it's all sorts of things that you would imagine, but the court enumerated a bunch of them that they were often poor or older or had lack of reliable transportation or childcare issues. Uh, just a lot of things that led them to filling out a ballot and, and giving them to one of those collection t- style groups. And so that brings us up to where the Supreme Court gets involved. Right. But so today we saw the um, uh, the Supreme Court rule in the case. They obviously overturned the decision by the Ninth Circuit. Um, I believe it was a six to three ruling. 
walk us through what the majority said here and and uh you know what what their reasoning was yeah it was six to three the three most liberal justices on the court um were in the minority here so in the majority writing for them was justice samuel alito he said courts should strike down voting restrictions only where they impose such substantial burdens on minority voters that they effectively block their ability to vote um He also stressed that states have a legitimate interest in rooting out fraud in elections, which has been, of course, all over the news and very contentious about is there fraud? Is there not? What do we count here? But he said that conceptually, states certainly have the right to try to prevent fraud and keep elections fair. Alito weighed that government interest of preventing fraud is one of five factors mm-hmm. that he enumerated to determine whether a restriction is blocked by the Voting Rights Act. Other things he had on the list were were stuff like um, the size of the burden imposed by the challenged rule, the disparities it imposes on different racial ethnic groups, and the opportunities to vote provided by a state's entire system for voting, not just one rule, just sort of the system in totality. So he essentially set up a new test for us to weigh out here. Love a new test, uh, especially on an already very complex area of the law. Let's. How about a new test? That sounds good. Um, we already mentioned a couple times it's a six to three ruling along ideological lines. I think it would be good maybe to touch on um, a couple of the uh, on on some highlights from the from the dissent. If you if yeah, you, if you got. Them. I wanted to touch down with Elena Kagan. She wrote a really blunt dissent in this one, and I just wanted to read uh, what I think is one of her more fiery excerpts. Quote. What is tragic here is that the court has yet again rewritten, in order to weaken, a statute that stands as a monument to America's greatness and protects against its basest impulses. What is tragic is that the court has damaged a statute designed to bring about the end of discrimination in voting. I think she gave such a very blunt and straightforward assessment because the Voting Rights Act is a pillar of civil rights law and the liberal wing of the court was pretty incensed about how this went. Anytime we talk about voting rights, uh, particularly voting rights as it has to do with discrimination and race, I, I don't think any listeners need to be reminded that that um, you know these are big sweeping questions that have a lot, um, you know, a lot of importance for a lot of people. But um, I thought we could pull back a little bit from the wording of the ruling and from what each side said, and sort of talk again about why you know um, sort of the stakes of this case. Yeah, I said at the top of this segment um, that one of the big reasons this is so important, not just in general, but right at this moment in time, is that all around the country, Republican-controlled state legislatures have been pushing restrictive new voting rules. They say they're to block fraud. So a lot of this depends on your perspective and political persuasion about whether or not you agree with the the idea that we need more to, to block a voter fraud. Or if, like many Democrats and civil rights groups say, um, that these are just a front to suppress the vote. And that's what those groups have been bringing to the court for redress. So if if Republicans have been passing these things all across the country and Democrats have been resorting to taking them to court and arguing Mm -hmm. using the Voting Rights Act and some other bits of legislation, um, this case is really seminal because a lot more of those cases could be in the pipeline. And you know, particularly for Democrats, this is a blow to what the court might agree needs to be struck down. So uh, it's pretty clear that if it makes it all, if any other cases make it all the way to the U.S. Supreme Court, they're not going to be super inclined to overturn a lot of these state measures. 
Um, we also have some parallel things going on in the area of voting rights. Democrats in Congress have been trying to push um, something called the For the People Act. It's a broad voting rights measure, mm -hmm. but currently it's stalled in our evenly divided Senate. So unless something changes with the filibuster, we're pretty much stopped there. And as you can imagine, President Biden put out a statement condemning this ruling. Meanwhile, many Republicans are applauding it as a way to make sure um, voter fraud is rooted out and that these laws can stay in place. So yet again, we have a very divided nation on issues about voting and politics, and it looks like it's going to stay that way for a long time. That'll wrap up our very busy show today. Thanks a lot, Bill, for being with me, breaking it all down. See you next week, guys. I hope things actually slow down next week. And also thanks to you, Alex. I'm getting out of here before something happens to one of the Supreme Court justices. <laughs> they retire or they decide uh, something. Or they're, or they're eaten by wolves. Yeah, something. I mean, you know, God forbid. But yes, uh, uh, great to talk to you guys. We'll see you again next week. We also want to thank our producers, Kelly Marcano and Stephen Trader, our graphic designer, Chris Yates, and our contributing reporters this week, Andrew Wesney, Matt Fair, and Dean Seal. Music for our show comes from Silent Partner and Kelly Marcano. If you like Pro Se, leave us a written review on your favorite podcast platform. That helps other people find our show. If you want to read more about anything we talked about, and boy, was it a lot today, check out our website. That's law360.com slash podcast. Happy Fourth of July, everybody, and see you back here next week.